Greetings and welcome to Unrelated Things, episode number 22, the podcast where I get to share with you things I've heard and read recently that either tick me off or tickle my fancy. You can see more about the stories that are included in this podcast at unrelatedthings.net. You can reach out to me at unrelatedthings at gmail. Dot com or follow me on Twitter at unrelated things. All right, cool. Last week, a young man attended a prayer vigil at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. And at the end of that prayer vigil, he shot nine people dead. It's far from the first time any similar situation has occurred here in the United States. And in fact, it's, it's way too common where we get um, these violent outbursts by members of our society. And the news media will talk about this incident for quite a long time. And they'll talk about the gunmen for quite a long time and we'll learn every nuance and every detail of that person's life. It's, it's way too often that in these circumstances we learn the names and hear about the perpetrators of the violence. And there's probably several of those people in, in the history of the U S that you could name. I could name some of them here, but I prefer not to. It's, I think, kind of a shame that where we can often name the perpetrators of such violence, we can rarely ever name the victims. You know? Um, because the victims aren't covered in detail and plastered on the news and talked about again and again and again and I think it's kind of backwards I think that it would be much better for our society if we learned as much about the victims as we did about the perpetrators so I'm going to very briefly tell you just a little bit about each of the victims of the church shooting in Charleston. Sharonda Coleman Singleton. Sharonda Coleman Singleton was a 45-year-old mother of three, a reverend, and a high school track coach. And she was killed while attending the prayer group at Emmanuel AME Church. She was a coach of the girls' track team at Goose Creek High School. Reverend Clementa Pinckney. The call to preach came early for Reverend Clementa Pinckney. Pinckney, at 41, was also a state senator in South Carolina. Cynthia Hurd. Cynthia Hurd was a librarian. She worked at the Charleston County Public Library, had worked there for 31 years, and she was also serving as the manager at St. Andrew's Regional Library since 2011. Taiwanza Sanders. Taiwanza Sanders was 26 years old. He was a recent graduate of Allen University in Columbia, South Carolina, and most recently had been working at a barber shop. And during the incident, Taiwanza was reported to have stepped in the way as the uh, shooter was getting ready to target his 87 year old aunt. Myra Thompson. Myra Thompson was age 59. She was the wife of Reverend Anthony Thompson who is vicar at the Holy Trinity, REC. 
Ethelie Lance was a 70-year-old sexton who had worked who had worked at the church for more than 30 years. She was the cousin of Susie Jackson, who was the oldest victim in the attack. Reverend Daniel L. Simmons. Simmons was a ministerial staff member at the church, and on June 19th, his family released the following statement. We would like to thank everyone for their thoughts and prayers concerning our beloved father and grandfather, Reverend Daniel Lee Simmons, Sr., who is a distinguished man who served his God, country, and community well. His dedication to his profession and the AME Church left a legacy for many to follow. Reverend Simmons was a former pastor of several AME churches in the 7th Episcopal District, a war veteran, a member of Phi Beta Sigma, and a loving father and grandfather. He was very proud of his family, including the mother of his children, Annie Simmons, his two children, Daniel and Rose Simmons, and his four grandchildren. Although he died at the hands of hate, he lived in the hands of love. We believe Reverend Simmons would want people to celebrate his life in love and peace. Please continue to pray for our family and the families of the other victims. Susie Jackson. She was a member of the Eastern Light Chapter number 360, Order of the Eastern Star. Reverend DePayne Middleton Doctor. She was a minister. She was a mother of four daughters. She sang in the church's choir and spoke at the pulpit with Reverend Pinckney. And the Middleton family released a statement on June 19th. The very thing many of us fight against, a deeply mask masked and far-reaching culture of violence in our society, has devastated our family. Our loved one, Reverend DePayne Middleton, was among those killed. Ever since her death was confirmed, our family has been met with unspeakable pain and grief. At this time of grave personal loss, we ask you for two things. First, Please keep our family and our church community at Mother Emanuel AME in your prayers. Next, please move away from the sidelines and unite together, regardless of your faith or religious practice, to seek an end to hatred and violence. What happened to our family is part of a larger attack on black and brown bodies. To impact change, we must recognize the connection between racism hate crimes, and racialized policing. While the focus for this specific attack was on African Americans, we all have a responsibility to seek not only justice for the victims, but an end to racial injustice. We should put our faith into action, making a conscious decision to be more than empty drums that have long since, that have long lost their melodies. In South Carolina, the Confederate flag an unequivocal symbol of hate, remains on statehouse grounds. We must demand the flag be removed immediately. We cannot let icons of racism fly free within our society. We call on all people, public officials, faith leaders, and Americans from all walks of life to help address the festering source of racism as it spurs an unforgiving culture of violence. This is a big task, but may become more manageable if we work together and if all people see the attack in Charleston as an attack on their own families and loved ones. It is inane and terrible. I'm going to move on now. A story from Nidorama.com. 90% of major crops in the USA are now... GMO. Whatever is your stand on genetically modified food, GMO food debate, one thing is clear. If you're in the United States, you are eating it. Over 90% of soybeans, cotton, and corn crops planted in the United States are genetically modified. Think you can avoid eating GMO simply by not eating corn or tofu? Think again. 
Cornmeal and soybean meal end up as livestock feed and their oils end up as cooking oils and as ingredients of a wide variety of processed foods. Corn is one of the major ingredients. Um, high fructose corn syrup, corn oil, corn meal. A lot of corn ends up in foods that you would not expect. Boy, howdy. From Inquisitor.com, a truck crashed in a heavy downpour of rains as it traveled along I-95 through central Florida. It was in Volusia County when it crashed. The Florida Highway Patrol reported that the truck, full of sharks, crashed near Oak Hill. The big rig suffered a tire separating and caused the crash damaging not only the huge aquarium and its load, but at least one of the shark occupants who died in the accident. No doubt we will see coming up this fall on the Sci-Fi Channel, shark trucks. Are you kidding me? This story from Rand Duran at popcultureblog.dallasnews.com Metastasis, the Spanish remake of Breaking Bad, doesn't look horrible. When I first heard that there was a Spanish remake of Breaking Bad in the works, I was worried. Why mess with perfection? But after seeing the trailer for Univision's remake, Metastasis, I have to confess I was interested. Yes, it will not be as good as the original. Those are some big shoes to fill and it may not have the drama and over-the-top hysteria of my childhood telenovelas, but it doesn't look bad at all. Mestastasis follows Walter Blanco, a teacher in Bogota, who, after being diagnosed with cancer, makes a series of very poor decisions. Yes, Walter White is now Walter Blanco. Jesse Pinkman is called Jose Miguel Rosas, while Hank is now Henry. According to the information on the show's website, Heisenberg will still be Heisenberg. May his name be feared throughout the nations. And I happened to stumble across this show as I was browsing through Netflix recent editions and uh, saw it there, the Spanish language version of Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad was an outstanding show. Um, and I thought, oh, I'll take a look and, and see how this looks. So I did watch the premiere episode, which tracks very, very closely to the U.S. original program um, with the same, same scenes and some of the probably uh, same dialogue, though, in Spanish. Um, it was a really interesting watch. The, the one major thing in the uh, premiere episode was that the big Winnebago was replaced with a converted old school bus. Um, but still the uh, scenes in the desert with the flying pants, etc. Um, played out the same way they did in the original uh, it's very interesting to watch. I, I recommend that you do. The author of this particular article notes that he expects the episodes will be available on Hulu+. Plus. Um, and as I said, I found the whole of season one available on Netflix. I think you just nailed it. From Chris Moran of Consumerist.com. A city in New Hampshire says that its parking enforcement officers have been harassed and kept from doing their duties by a group of Robin Hoods who follow the officers around, not only putting coins in expired meters before the cars can be ticketed, but videotaping and speaking rudely to them. Yesterday, the state's highest court ruled that this behavior is protected by the First Amendment, but will give the city one more chance to argue for, the, for some sort of injunction to put some distance between the Robin Hoods and the officers. 
the city of Keene, New Hampshire, had tried to bring a civil case of tortious interference against the Robin Hoods, claiming the group's actions were preventing the enforcement officers from doing their work. The city said the lawsuit wasn't intended to stop the anti-meter protesters from filling up expired meters or from videotaping officers, but to hold the Robin Hoods responsible for the more allegedly obnoxious aspects of their protest. A trial court had dismissed the city's complaint, saying the defendant's actions were permitted by the First Amendment as the protest was taking place in a proper public forum and involved a genuine matter of public concern. That we have complete and utter freedom of speech uh, for the most part. In New Hampshire's neighbor of Vermont... A story, this story from sfgate.com. A Vermont man has escaped jury duty by getting dismissed for wearing a prisoner costume. James Lowe of Barnett says he was released from jury duty on Tuesday when he showed up to court wearing a black and white striped jumpsuit with a matching beanie. The Caledonian Record reports that Lowe showed up on time and joined other prospective jurors before the start of the selection process. Deputies directed him to an empty courtroom to meet with the judge, who told him to leave. Lowe says the judge told him he could have been found in contempt of court. That could have meant a fine or jail time. Lowe says the juror instructions don't restrict clothing, but that he's happy to be released because of his work schedule and family obligations. I'm just looking for pants. From Inquisitor.com, Eastern Cougar declared extinct, removed from list of U.S. endangered species. Unfortunately, the Eastern Cougar has been elusive to researchers since the 1930s when the last photo of the cat was taken. Its, similar, it, its similarity and looks to other cougars and pumas are thought to be the reasoning behind the sightings. However, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has made the move to officially declare the eastern cougar as being extinct and states that it may have been extinct for at least 75 years. And the Fish and Wildlife Service has made this move before, but that was move was not never fully acted upon. Um, so if this one is, then the Eastern Cougar will be officially declared extinct. Our children will never know what that's like. Very well said. From David Moy at HuffingtonPost.com. A Pennsylvania man accused of using a bomb to rob a bank Monday afternoon says his weapon of choice was actually just a vibrator wrapped in duct tape. Aaron Stein allegedly robbed the PNC Bank in Crafton by telling employees he was carrying an explosive device. Quote, he stated he had a bomb, showed the teller wires hanging out from his shirt, and demanded cash. Crafton Police Chief Mark Sumter told the news. Police said the teller gave Stein an undisclosed amount of cash but called 911 after he fled. Stein was arrested after Robinson Township Officer Mark Gastjib spotted his white Toyota sedan along the road. Quote, I noticed a white Toyota Corolla with a male in it sitting in this parking lot over here, he told CBS. I, oh, I went over to confront him. He drove away. I stopped him. Another officer on the scene found money in a garbage bag inside Stein's car. Beneath the front passenger seat, officers found the, quote, bomb Stein is accused of using. Sumter said it was made out of, quote, a box, black tape, vibrator, and cell phone. Oh, my gosh. From Kate Shepard at HuffingtonPost.com. The heads of the G7 leading industrial nations agreed to, quote, decarbonize the global economy in the course of this century. 
at their meeting in Germany. German Chancellor Angela Merkel announced that the G7 countries would phase out the use of fossil fuels by 2100. As the BBC notes, the G7 agreement on fossil fuels is not legally binding, but does, quote, send a clear message to investors that in the long term, economies will have to be powered by non-polluting energy. Advocates for climate action heralded the move. If you want the sign that humanity's still got it going on, From Inquisitor.com An unnamed man and woman were shocked to find two strangers in the man's backyard. The owner of the house yelled at the men to get lost. Quote, What the hell are you doing in my yard? Get the hell out of here, he yelled to the murderers. The murderers. Despite the harsh tone, one of the escaped killers responded passively. Quote, We're just lost. We don't know where we are. We're on the wrong street and then they took off running. The homeowner later found out the identity of the two men. David Sweat and Richard Matt had escaped from Clinton Correctional Facility in the prior week and had been on the run ever since. These two were both convicted of murder and were sentenced and were being kept at the Clinton Correctional Facility where they staged a fairly elaborate breakout using power tools to cut through the walls of their cells to cut into a steam pipe which they crawled through reminiscent of the Shawshank Redemption movie um, where they then climbed out of a manhole cover outside of the prison before escaping on foot. It's a sign of the end times. It may not quite have been a sign of the end times, but definitely not a, a encouraging sign for sure. But this next story is definitely more encouraging. There's a great video that I found and saw on YouTube of a little experiment that was conducted. I think this was in Los Angeles in the subway. And a few people put up a, a board with a whole bunch of thumbtacks in it and a sign at the top that said, give what you can, take what you need. When they revealed the board, they kind of turned it around and, and attached it to the wall. Um, each of the thumbtacks was holding a dollar bill. I don't know what the total total dollar amount was to start with, but there might have been 50 to $100 on there. And like I said, the sign up at the top said, give what you can, take what you need. And watching the video is really interesting image of humanity. As you see some people taking some dollars off the board, and but other people adding dollars to the board. Um, one person even, you know, pinning up a $20 bill. And I think that it just kind of shows us a little more about our true nature, that uh, despite the terrible things that people do to each other, that there is still a lot of good that we are capable of and that we express to each other as well. Yeah, we got to get some of that. So if you're in the UK, you may have an opportunity to try out this treat, this story from Chris Moran at Consumers.com. Have you ever looked at your empty cup of coffee and just wished you could devour it? You'd probably survive eating your standard paper cup, but it wouldn't be the most tasty of experiences. Thank God there's KFC which is introducing an edible coffee cup in the UK. The, quote, Scoffee Cup is intended to promote the chicken chain's launch of Seattle's best coffee at its KFC eateries in the UK. It was developed by food scientists at a company called the Robin Collective. Creators of things like edible terrariums 
and a margarita that changes colors. The cups consist of a cookie, or biscuit, as they say in England, wrapped in sugar paper that is lined with heat-resistant white chocolate. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. New Jersey man creates dangerously icy road condition to cover up DWI accident. After wrecking his vehicle due to being under the influence of alcohol, a New Jersey man decided to use water to make the roadway icy and attempt to make the car accident appear to be an attempt to make the car accident appear to be an accident. And uh, as you might notice, because of the time where you may be listening to this, uh, time I'm recording this, which is in the summer, this story originated back in February. After crashing, Byers drove the car to his home, which was about a mile away. After filling two five-gallon buckets with water, Byers and his friend drove back to the scene of the accident. The two men poured the water on the road, creating a dangerous patch of black ice on the roadway. Officers believe the duo may have made more than one trip to the home for water. Officer C.J. Grauerholz of the Sparta police came upon the scene on Sawmill Road as Byers was walking back towards the idling vehicle, which was parked in the middle of the road. The officer walked to the vehicle to find the friend sitting in the driver's seat, topless in one degree temperature. The friend told the officer that he had removed his shirt because it had gotten wet when he fell down. After looking around the car, the officer spotted the two five-gallon buckets in the car with some water still in them. I did that too, yeah. Oh my gosh. This story from Mary Beth Quirk at Consumerist.com. Although the average traveler should know by now that flying with guns in your carry-on bag is not going to fly with the Transportation Security Administration, the number of people trying to bring firearms through airport security is going up every year, the agency says. In 2014, a record 2,212 firearms were seized at the nation's airports, while screening more than 653 million passengers. Of those more than 2,000 firearms, 83% of those were loaded. That is a 22% increase over 2013, when 1,813 firearms were taken from travelers' carry-ons. And it's a kind of a scary situation, noting that that number of people were found to have uh, firearms in their carry-on bags, and the even scarier part is that a test of TSA security found that people that were testing the security agents and trying to see if they would identify the dangerous substances that were being attempted to be brought through security at airports, the TSA agent, agents failed 95% of those tests that the government was was running. So to note that they didn't identify 95% of the dangerous materials that were trying to be smuggled through security in those tests, and that they did recognize and find over 2,200 firearms last year. How many firearms did they not detect? Give me a freaking break! For the first time, more than half of U.S. public school students live in low-income households, according to a new analysis from the Southern Education Foundation. Overall, 51% of U.S. school children came from low-income households in 2013. The report shows the percentage of school children from poor households has grown steadily for nearly a quarter century, from 32% in 1989. By 2006, the national rate was 42%, and after the Great Recession, the rate climbed in 2011 to 48%, and now currently resides at 51. It's horrid. It's just bad. From Reuters.com by Richard Valdmanis. 
New Hampshire wildlife officials are drawing up a proposal to curb the use of chocolate as bait by hunters seeking to draw black bears out of the woods after four of the wild animals were found dead at a trapping site from an overdose of the treat. Four black bears, including two cubs, were found dead in September within 50 feet of where a hunter placed nearly 100 pounds of chocolate and donuts as bait, wildlife officials said. An autopsy conducted by the University of New Hampshire showed the bears had died of an overdose of theobromine, a naturally occurring toxic ingredient in chocolate. Hunters killed 784 bears in New Hampshire during the 2014 hunting season, the vast majority by using bait. The proposal put forward by the department could range from banning any chocolate and bear bait to allowing it only in limited quantities. But it's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. A story by Marina Santadino at inquisitor.com. Could the, could the herbicide, herbicide glyphosate, gosh, difficult words, uh, or, or maybe I just need more practice speaking, could the herbicide glyphosate commonly found in Monsanto's Roundup be killing our earthworms? A study published in the scientific journal Water, Air, and Soil Pollution last quarter found that when researchers examined the toxicity of pesticides and herbicides, their effects on earthworms and other species in the soil are not adequately examined. Authors of the study, which focused on the sublethal effects of glyphosate on earthworms, the researchers performed an experiment that studied the effects of glyphosate on the earthworm Isenia fatida. In the study, the adult earthworms were separated into three groups. The first group of earthworms was exposed to no glyphosate. The second group of earthworms was exposed to a typical dose of glyphosate that is advised for perennial weeds. The third group of earthworms were exposed to a double dose of glyphosate. The results showed that the earthworms that were not exposed to glyphosate had a positive population growth rate. Both of the glyphosate-exposed groups had negative growth rate. The researchers said that their results indicate that while glyphosate-based herbicides like Roundup are not intended to limit the population of earthworms, with glyphosate application in lawn maintenance and farming, earthworms are at risk of local extinction. Oh my gosh. Story from sfgate.com. It seemed an unlikely excuse from a man suspected of breaking into cars at an auto yard, but police say it appears a Norwalk man was being truthful when he insisted he was just checking the vehicles to make sure they were locked. Employees at Coatings Auto Body caught 20-year-old Alexander Lewis and held him for police. The Hour of Norwalk reports Lewis told police he was simply making sure each car was locked and if he found one that wasn't, he would open the door and lock it. Police reviewed security video and found his story seemed to check out. They could find no evidence of him going into any of the cars or stealing anything. Oh, that's nice. Oh, isn't it though? The first mountain lion seen in Kentucky since the Civil War. And this story is from back in December. A mountain lion was seen for the first time in Kentucky since the Civil War. Though the mountain lion was in a tree when police responded to the scene, the animal was quickly shot and killed. Oh no! What did you expect? More people in Utah have been killed by police in the last five years than by gangbangers, drug dealers, or child abusers, the Salt Lake Tribune is reporting. The Tribune reviewed some 300 homicide cases dating back to 2009, and it found that the use of force by police ranks second in the list of circumstances in which Utahns kill each other, behind only murder by intimate partner. It is inane and terrible. 
So last November, after November 7th, extremely low voter turnout, U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont announced that he would introduce legislation to make Election Day a national holiday. Quote, in America, we should be celebrating our democracy and doing everything possible to make it easier for people to participate in the political process. Election Day should be a national holiday so that everyone has the time and opportunity to vote. While this would not be a cure-all, it would indicate a national commitment to create a more vibrant democracy, said Sanders. Quote, we should not be satisfied with a, quote, democracy in which more than 60% of our people don't vote and some 80% of young people and low-income Americans fail to vote. We can and must do better than that. While we must also focus on campaign finance reform and public funding of elections, establishing an election day holiday would be an important step forward. The International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance ranks the United States 120th in the world for average turnout. Sanders said a national holiday would be just one step forward in attempting to strengthen American democracy. He has long advocated public funding of elections to blunt the impact of negative campaign ads bankrolled by billionaires and big corporations. He co-sponsored a constitutional amendment to overturn the disastrous 2010 Supreme Court ruling in Citizens United versus Federal Elections Commission that voided campaign funding limits. Sanders also has criticized a wave of voter suppression laws passed in states with Republican legislatures and governors, reducing opportunities for early voting, making it harder to register to vote, and requiring IDs all have discouraged participation in elections. And the in the Democratic primaries coming up in 2016, Sanders has given a whole lot of people who might otherwise have sat out um, a reason to step forward and a reason to come and vote. Um, it's not often that someone with Sanders' uh, platform um, makes a strong bid for the uh, Democratic nomination for president, um, but Sanders is making a strong bid, so that will definitely attract a lot of voters who might have otherwise not been very excited by any of the other candidates in the field. He's underrated. We're taught that after the war, the Nazis vanished without a trace. But battalions of fascists still dream of a master race. The history books, they tell of their defeat in 45. But they all came out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died. They say the prisoner of Spandau was a symbol of defeat. Whilst Hess remained in prison, then the fascists, they were beat. So the promise of an Aryan world would never materialize. So why did they all come out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died? For decades, neo-Nazis have traveled to the southeastern German town of Wunseidel, where Rudolf Hess, Adolf Hitler's deputy, was buried until 2011. The right-wing extremists marched through the town in commemoration of Hess year after year, glorifying the horrors of the Third Reich. This time, however, everything was different. Although Wundeisel's inhabitants had observed the march from a distance over the past years, this time, some of them welcomed the neo-Nazi protesters effusively with rainbow confetti and even cheered for them. What had happened? No, the residents of Wundseidel, most of them skeptical and critical of the neo-fascists, had not suddenly turned into Nazi sympathizers. Instead, the group Rights vs. Rights had come up with a new way to protest the annual neo-Nazi march. For every meter the neo-Nazis walked, the local businesses and residents would donate $12.50 to a non-governmental organization devoted to making it easier for neo-Nazis to leave behind their hateful politics. The scene was captured on video by the groups. The 200 neo-Nazis had only two choices when they 
got to know about the plan. Either they proceeded indirectly donating money to the Exit Germany initiative, or they acknowledged their defeat and suspended the march. The neo-Nazis decided to pursue their plans and participated in raising funds for an organization committed to their downfall. One of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. From Nidorama.com. Hanover is a small town south of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. For as long as anyone can remember, it's been a dry town. That means that people aren't allowed to buy or sell alcoholic beverages. Town officials enforced this law, which was not entirely popular. In 2006, the town held a referendum to repeal the law. By a 30-vote margin, the town upheld the alcohol prohibition statute. And recently, the town held a new, another election. The alcohol law was once again up for referendum. But as, as they were preparing for the election, town officials discovered an important piece of information. The law didn't exist. Everyone had assumed that alcohol sales were illegal in the town, but no one could find the actual text of the law. Lawyers poured through records going far, as far back as 1880 and found no alcohol prohibition law. Peace Prize winner Malala Yousafzai, 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 I should try to look up pronunciations before I start recording. Peace Prize winner Malala Y to Obama, stop arming the world. Pakistani teenager Malala Yousafzai, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and was shot in the head by the Taliban for advocating girls' education, told President Barack Obama he could, quote, change the world if only he'd send books instead of guns to other countries. Quote, my message was very simple, Malala, who is 17, said. Speaking of her recent meeting with the president, quote, I said, instead of sending guns, send books. Instead of sending weapons, send teachers. The EPA has approved a new version of the 2,4-D weed killer called Enlist Duo. The chemical herbicide is des designed for use on GMO corn and genetically modified soybeans. And we, I had that story earlier about genetically modified organisms being 90% uh, of the corn and soybeans that we use in the United States. And they're genetically modified so they can resist weed killers so that we can spray more weed killers to kill the other plants that are trying to grow in and among the crops. Uh, the new version, uh, although some in the, in the agricultural industry have reportedly been eagerly awaiting the approval of Dow's new 2,4-D Enlist Duo, organic growers and environmental activists have voiced public health concerns and want more studies on the chemical herbicide. According to the Center for Food Safety, Dow is pushing the federal government into an era of unprecedented genetically modified corn and soybean production. GMO corn and soybeans have reportedly been designed to serve multiple sprayings of 2,4-D, which is reportedly part of the highly toxic chemical recipe used to create Agent Orange. The story stood out to me when I saw 2,4-D because of a song that I used to listen to quite frequently by the artist Mark Levy called Babies Are Replaceable because a company in Washington State, according to the song, was spraying 2,4-D and got into legal trouble because of the number of people in town who were trying to have children whose pregnancies were failing. Um, as part of the hearings or the outreach from the company, the scientists said 
at one point, quote, babies are replaceable, unquote, which is an unfortunate uh, turn of phrase to use even, you know, whatever you're, you're describing. Um, so that's anyway, a little, a little tiny piece filtered through a folk slash protest singer, um, to me about 2,4-D. It's just bad. By a story by David Moy. When John Thornton visited the Doubletree Hotel in Bristol, Connecticut on Monday night, he apparently did not like the mop job being done by a female employee. So he allegedly grabbed the mop from the woman and began, in the words of the police report, quote, mopping aggressively. As a result, the Doubletree got a clean floor and Thornton was charged with breach of peace, according to the Connecticut patch. And while the story is quite amusing by the way that the police report indicated he was breaching the peace, breaching the peace, he did appear to be acting in a very unusual and potentially threatening manner to the employees who called the police. Sometimes stuff happens. A story from Slate.com. Americans have no idea how bad inequality really is. If Michael Norton's research is to be believed, Americans don't have the faintest clue how severe economic inequality has become, and if they only knew, they'd be appalled. Consider the Harvard Business School professor's new study examining public opinion about executive compensation. And the story goes on to show what pe what people think the current distribution of wealth is in the U.S. versus what it actually is versus what they think it should be. The study's leaders asked participants to guess how wealth was distributed in the United States and then to write how it would be divvied up in an ideal world. Subjects estimated that the top 20% of U.S. households owned about 59% of the country's net worth, whereas actually they own about 84% of it. In their own private utopia, subjects said that the top 20% should be able to claim only 32% of the wealth. So a giant gulf between what people believe the current division of wealth is in the United States and what it actually is, and an even bigger gulf between what they believe it should be and what it actually is. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. A story from Reuters.com. In India, a TV news anchor has been sacked after she referred to Chinese President Xi Jinping as Eleven Jinping, apparently confusing Xi's name with the Roman numerals XI. Maybe confusing it because it's spelled that way. A senior official at the state television channel said that they fired the anchor after her error. It's this kind of stuff that drives me freaking crazy. North Carolina's longest-serving death row inmate and his half-brother, serving a life sentence, have been exonerated and released from prison after spending more than 30 years behind bars for rape and murder they did not commit. Robson County Superior Court acted with lightning speed to free the two men, Leon Brown and Henry McCollum, who were 15 and 19 at the time of their arrest in 1983. It was testimony to the overwhelming strength of the evidence that was presented to the court 
that Judge Douglas Sasser cleared them of the murder of 11-year-old Sabrina Bowie on the first day of a hearing to consider new DNA evidence in the case. The evidence absolved McCollum and Brown, now 46 and 50, of any link to biological material collected at the crime scene. It also found a positive match with a known sex offender from the same small town who was living just feet away from the field in which Bui's body was found. Who are these douchebags and how quickly can we get them and how terrible can we make their punishment? From Nidorama.com, a UK air accidents investigation branch reported report revealed an incident in February in which a pilot was landing a small commuter jet in Belfast when his arm fell off. Quote, the 46-year-old pilot described by Flyby as among its most experienced and trusted pilots wears a prosthetic limb and said that he believed he had securely fixed the arm in place earlier, but with the heavy winds, once he deactivated the Dash 8 aircraft's autopilot as he prepared to land the plane, that's when the arm troubles began. Asked why a pilot with only one arm was flying a plane in the first place, Flybe Safety Director, Director Captain Ian Baston said that the budget airline had a policy of equal opportunity employment and therefore, quote, in common with most airlines, we do employ staff with reduced physical abilities. The pilot lost control of the plane only briefly and still guided it to a safe and bumpy landing using one arm. He promised to secure his arm better in the future. Are you kidding me? Vermont's GMO labeling law still stands after U.S. District Court Judge Christina Rice ruled against the Grocery Manufacturers Association and other interested food groups' request for a preliminary injunction that would stop the GMO labeling law from going into effect in Vermont next summer. The ruling brings Vermont one huge step closer to being the first state in the union to mandate that foods containing genetically modified organisms disclose that information on product labels. I think you just nailed it. From uprocks.com by Stacy Ritson. A mystery graffiti artist slash hero who is calling himself Wanksy has taken it upon himself to solve the problem of Manchester's pothole-ridden streets, drawing attention to the offending potholes by spray-painting giant dicks around them. He uses non-permanent paint because his mission is, first and foremost, to get the roads fixed. Quote, They damage vehicles. Sometimes it's hard to know which pothole caused the damage because there are so many. When I finished in Ramsbottom, I'll move on to the rest of Manchester. I wanted to attract attention to the pothole and make it memorable. Nothing seemed to do this better than a giant comedy phallus. It's also speedy. I don't want to be in the road for a long time. It seems to have become my signature. I just want to make people smile and draw attention to the problem. I don't want to talk about it. In a court decision decision that seems like a colossal waste of time, a New Jersey judge has ruled that a mom did not, in fact, abuse her daughter by taking her to see Pink in concert. It took Superior Court Judge Lawrence Jones 37 pages and several rock and roll references to get his point across. But the point was well made. No harm done, and all that happened was, uh, quote, young girl went to her first rock concert with her mother, and they had a really great time. In his 32-page ruling, the judge wrote, quote, The lyrics are not only age-appropriate for teens and preteens in 2014 America, but from an artistic standpoint, they are particularly noteworthy in addressing important social themes and messages which are objectively relevant and relatable to young Americans in high schools and junior highs throughout the country. I think you just nailed it. How would you get your nation's president to hear you out? 
put your name and number on a mango and hit him in the head with it. Marlene Olivo did exactly that. Olivo had written a message on a mango, quote, if you can, call me, unquote, along with her name and phone number. She got as close as she could to President Nicolas Maduro as her bus passed him, and she tossed the fruit at him. In a video that has gone viral in Venezuela, Maduro is shown lowering his head when he is hit, just above the left ear. He then calmly picks up the mango and holds it up to the crowd. Later in the evening, the president mentioned the incident in one of his customary live TV broadcasts and displayed the infamous mango as proof. Quote, Marlene Olivo, Maduro said, we're going to invite her to my TV and radio show in touch with Maduro. She has, she had a housing problem, right? And Marlene, I have approved it already as part of the great housing mission of Venezuela. You will get an apartment and it will be given to you in the next few hours. Tomorrow, no later than the day after tomorrow, we will give it to you. So, in Venezuela, sometimes hitting the president in the head with a mango has good consequences. Look at that! And much like the German town who turned a negative... Um, protest by a group of neo-Nazis into donations for an anti-Nazi group. Um, Ann Wheaton, the individual behind Vandalize, and that is Vandal Eyes, V-A-N-D-A-L-E-Y-E-S, and the wife of Will Wheaton, did an experiment on Twitter yesterday, which led harassing gamer gators into causing donations to be made to one of the organizations they despise the most, Feminist Frequency. Ann Wheaton wrote, I know I am a good person, and I do what I can to make a positive difference in the world. For days I have been attacked by terrible people. For every angry, hateful, and or disrespectful tweet I receive from a Gamergate person, I am donating $1 to Feminist Frequency. I am already up to $67, she tweeted. I am capping my donation tally at $1,000, but if you feel like matching or contributing to my Feminist Frequency donation, feel free to do so, she followed up with. And she got a couple of responses from that tweet. Dear Ann Wheaton, I am matching your pledges to Feminist Frequency to $1,000. So that will be $2 for every disrespectful tweet. And that was tweeted by John Scalzi, the author. And that was also followed up. Make that $3. I'll join, said Tom Vanderwart. So Ann Wheaton turned those lemons into lemonade. Oh, boy, howdy. And finally, this episode, a story from Consumers.com by Mary Beth Quirk. Falling firmly in the category of things I never thought I'd hear about on an otherwise perfectly normal day is a 40-pound wolverine that was captured after breaking loose and running around at Newark Airport. And yes, I'm talking about the animal, not Hugh Jackman. Officials in New Jersey say the male European wolverine broke out of its carrier around 3.30 in the afternoon on Tuesday inside a transport van. He was on his way to Alaska from Norway with a layover in Newark. A veterinarian from the Bronx Zoo arrived on the scene and shot the animal with a tranquilizer dart so he could be safely captured and moved into another, more secure carrier. He's the property of the Alaska State Zoo and was traveling with zoo staff when he busted loose. No injuries were reported. So anyway, there you go. That's what you need to pay attention to.
So that will wrap up this episode of Unrelated Things. If you want to read more about these and other similar stories, visit the website at unrelatedthings.net. If you want to reach out to me based on anything you heard on this podcast or see on that site, you can email me at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. You can also follow Unrelated Things on Twitter. Thanks for listening.